Welcome back to the Marion Flaxman Network podcast. On today's episode, my conversation with Dr. Melissa Hawkins. I first met Dr. Hawkins when I was contemplating quitting my full-time job and returning to school as a mom of three. She's a mom of four, and she totally set me at ease when we talked about her journey through academia and what I could expect in my own journey. She's the Associate Chair of the Health Studies Department at American University and has a two-decade-long career in the field of public health. In this conversation, we talk about the ups and downs in public health during the COVID-19 pandemic, health literacy in children, how a public health professional feeds her own kids, and how she's learned to leave room for serendipity in her life. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Melissa Hawkins. I want to start by talking about your own background, Mm -hmm. because I know from speaking with you previously that when you first went off to college, Mm -hmm. you had no idea what public health was, Mm -hmm. and you thought you were going to study and maybe do something totally different. So I want to hear a little bit about that. Sure. Maybe what you thought you might be when you grew up (laughs) and what you were really interested in and how you chose the college that you did choose. Okay. Um, well, why I chose the college I chose or why I chose public health or both? Well, let's start with your undergrad. Why did you choose your undergrad? Well, I'll start from the beginning, but I'll make it very quick. I wanted to go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and that was the only school I thought I could see myself. Um, and I only was planning to apply to one school. And if I got in, then I knew that that was the right place. And if I didn't, then college was not for me. And, uh, my parents persuaded me otherwise that I had to apply to at least a couple of other schools. So I applied to UNC Chapel Hill, was not invited to be admitted. (laughs) I like that phrasing. (laughs) Um, Was crushed. And I applied to Vanderbilt and I applied to Emory. And then I thought I would go to Vanderbilt and went for a visit and it just wasn't I could just I just wasn't the right fit I could tell and then Emory was the only one that was left and I showed up the first day of classes freshman year having never visited not really knowing much about the school because that was that was the only option at that point so I didn't know what I wanted to study necessarily at all um and I just was a very curious student always. So when I started taking classes at Emory, I very quickly discovered anthropology and medical anthropology and had a fabulous professor, you know, one of those professors that can just change how you think about things. And his passion for the field um, was just uh, contagious. So, and he's still there, Melvin Connor. Um, And then I thought that I wanted to stay in anthropology for graduate studies. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just knew that I loved school. I loved learning. And when I was graduating, I just wanted more. And I really loved being a student. So I think I've said this to you before. I never left school. (laughs) So I went on to get my master's and then I got my doctorate degree. And then I've been really in academia since then. So I've really never left the um, school environment and and I love it. But discovering public health was along the way and was just happenstance because Um, The Centers for Disease Control, CDC, is literally steps away from Emory's campus. So I needed to work all four years through undergrad, and I did not have a car. 
and I could Steps get a job <laughs> at the CDC. And it just so happened that I was hired in the Department of Epidemiology. So that's how I was introduced to public health and epidemiology um, and working. And I was working on a research study on listeriosis. I was doing data collection for the food contamination that uh, disease and people who had been infected with listeriosis. And um, I did that all four years. And so it was my supervisor who suggested that I applied to public health schools. And I sort of did the same thing in graduate school. Now that I'm thinking about it, I applied to one school of public health, which was Hopkins, and um, the rest were anthro schools. But Hopkins um, gave me the most money, which is a tip for anyone going to graduate school. Follow the money. Uh, you can get your master's paid for. You should certainly have your doctorate paid for. Um, and so that's why I ended up going there. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I love that story because it highlights a lot of things that are really important in general and important to me. First of all, the fact that your view of college as a teenager was there's one school I want to go to. And if it's not that school, then college isn't for me. And yet <laughs> right. here you are these many years later mm -hmm. and you've been in the mm -hmm. world of academia since then. So obviously college was for you. <laughs> but at the time, it was so hard to see that. Right. And then I also love that you just kind of like kind of just let yourself be pushed mm -hmm. forward a little bit, follow the curiosity, mm -hmm. and then we're inspired by certain professors. I mean, a similar thing happened to me. Like I had a friend who suggested that I look into American. Mm -hmm. And then I had a professor of food policy who really got me interested mm -hmm. in that side of things. And mm -hmm. I had Dr. Holton and working in her lab, which I was pushed into, like I got the introduction from a different professor. Right. So things just kind of happen. Right. And I think that it's important because, and maybe this applies more broadly, but certainly when it comes to education and for all the young people listening, mm -hmm. it's like if you're too fixated on this thing that you think you want and you don't allow for the possibility of other things coming to you, you might miss your destiny. That's right. That's <laughs> so. right. Well, I... Um, I say a similar thing, which is planning is good. Goals are really important. It's hard to get anywhere if you don't know where you want to go. I'm very much of a planner and sort of list-oriented and goal-oriented, especially on the small things. But the big things, I've just found in my life, the leaving room for the serendipity and the unexpected and the chance and those connections has made the difference in all of my big decisions, professional yeah. and personal. Yeah. Just having to leave room for the serendipity because that's where the beauty and the magic is. Yeah. And I want to reiterate that, that sort of on the micro scale, mm -hmm. the lists. Oh, yeah. The check marks. Every day. The ability to plan and execute on a schedule. Mm -hmm. Super important. Keeps you grounded. Keeps you moving forward. Yep. But on the macro, on Gotta the vision room. board, mm -hmm. maybe leaving a little Gotta bit of blurred room. edges. Got to be flexible. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Mm -hmm. I love that. All right. So... These days, you know, when you went to school, mm -hmm. public health wouldn't have been an, right. under, an undergraduate major. Didn't exist as a degree. Didn't mm -hmm. exist. Um, and it was, certainly was not quite the same kind of topic in the vernacular as it is now. You mm -hmm. wouldn't have turned on CNN and, you know, seen public health leaders necessarily all the time. So talk to me a little bit about how the current public health situation, both its existence as an undergraduate major and just the general awareness of it as a field and topic mm -hmm. in general has changed the field currently and maybe what you think it might do for the future of public health. Okay. 
Um, so you're right. The p- undergraduate public health degree didn't exist really 10 years ago. But then as it was being introduced into universities, mostly at first universities that had schools of public health, at AU, American University, we don't have a school of public health, but we do have an undergraduate major. We're pretty proud of the fact that we're an accredited program. As a, It's called a standalone program because we don't have a school of public health, but that our curriculum has been accredited by the um, Council for Education and Public Health as an undergraduate standalone program. So... The thing about undergraduate programs is once they started becoming introduced as majors in universities across the country, private, public, small, large, they very quickly became the most popular major in those schools and colleges, including at AU. Um, And I think there's a reason uh, for that, um, which is... It's a very broad field. It's health. So for those that are interested in health, and maybe you're pre-med, maybe you're interested in global health, maybe you're interested in health policy, maybe you're interested in nutrition. There's room for all of that within the field because it's so broad. It's very um, aspirational. It's a field that wants to improve the lives for everyone and improve health and health outcomes to make the world a better place. So, it, you know, it really, I think, is a good fit for developmentally for students that are really at that age and time where they want to make a difference in the world. And this is certainly sort of a pathway to be able to, to do that. Um, and it's interdisciplinary. So any public health major is going to have courses that are offered, you know, in our department, which is the Department of Health Studies. But you're going to have philosophy and bioethics. You're going to have biology and, bi- you know, in, in, in the biology department. You're going to have courses in psychology and sociology. So I think that's appealing as well. So it's become a very popular major of choice. Which has led to, and we're sort of in, I think, a transition in terms of what the master's uh, degree looks like for students that have an undergraduate degree in public health. Because previously, the MPH, which is a very well-recognized degree in the field, was the entry point for public health. And there was no assumption that you had any background in the field, you know, formal training in the field. And it was a really... um, diverse group of graduate students because they were coming from all kinds of backgrounds. And then the MPH. Now the MPH, in in my opinion, you know, you really would need to look at it carefully after having an undergraduate degree because it's going to be very redundant to what you've had as an undergraduate. So there's a little bit of um, a challenge there for us as a field that we're working out in terms of what's distinguishing an undergraduate degree from an MPH. And for those who have an undergraduate degree is an MS or some other master's degree that's going to be able to go deeper into the subject area that you know that you want to have a focus and a concentration because you've had the broad introduction with your undergraduate degree, which is very similar to the MPH, and might that be a better um, choice? So I think, you know, that's sort of where the field is going in terms of, you know, graduate training and, and training of undergraduates and graduates. Um, I think the first part of your question was about also what's changed. I think from a public perspective, there's not really much good that came from the pandemic, but having an awareness of what the field is, what, you know, people use terminology, public health terminology and language now very comfortably and having a basic understanding of some, you know, epidemiological terms, I think is a good thing. Um, It's an understanding and and an awareness. 
I think we've always been a field that thought if you don't know what's happening in public health, that's a good thing because that's we're a prevention field. So right. when we're in the news and we're in the headlines, something's gone wrong. Right. People are dying. People are sick. There's an outbreak. There's trends that are changing in a in a usually negative way. And so, you know, we are the field of, you know, things in the background when it's going well. You don't hear a lot about that work. Yeah, very much no mm-hmm. news is good news. That's exactly health. right. That's exactly right. I also think, um, as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking about all the really cool undergraduate students that I met studying mm-hmm. public health, and then also in my master's program, which, like you say, I thought when I went back to school, okay, like, I'm in my 30s, I'm definitely going to get a graduate degree, because, like, why even bother going back if not to keep going? And I thought, for sure, I'll get an MPH. Mm-hmm. Um, but to American universities' credit, the bachelor's of public health was so robust And also, I had previously taken a lot of, like, gen eds, so Mm -hmm. I was really mainlining public health Mm -hmm. classes. And it really felt to me like going to get an MPH was just going to be the exact same stuff again. Not that I wouldn't have enjoyed it, but it felt like maybe I should be seeking something a little bit different, which is how I ended up getting a master's Mm -hmm. of science in biomedical science policy. Like you say, I wanted to go deeper on the policy and on the medical science specifically Mm -hmm. um, and the microbiome and immunology. So that's sort of like... Exactly what I experienced mm-hmm. is what you just said, but also thinking about like my fellow students and the kind of people that are drawn to public health. What I hope this awareness raising in terms of undergraduate students in public health does for the future of the healthcare field is that it causes more doctors, nurses, dietitians, mm-hmm. health coaches to have a public health lens mm-hmm. on their work. Because when I was uh, at Georgetown, Pretty much everyone that I was in school with there considered themselves a future medical doctor. Right. They were all like, yeah, I'm getting this master's, but then I'm taking the MCATs, and then I'm going to medical school. Right. But here they were studying health policy. Right. And I thought, gosh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so great that I'm in these classes, and I'm super passionate about these topics, you know, global health and health policy and population health. But but I don't plan to be a medical doctor, but these people are the future doctors. And it's so comforting to me to know that they're thinking through a population health lens. And same thing with the students at American. There were a lot of like future doctors, Mm -hmm. nurses, lawyers, dietitians, people who maybe are working more closely with individuals. But now having this bachelor's degree in public health, they'll be taking this epidemiological population health lens into the field with them. And I think that that can only be a good thing from like a framework perspective. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's promising um, for sure. I mean, we, our society, our American society and healthcare system is definitely still treatment focused. But all of these shifts, I think, are promising. So, yes, it used to be public health was mostly, well, many of the people that were going into the field had been in the medical field and either as physicians or nursing or in some way, and they were wanting to have the tools and the skills, a lot of research skills to be able to bring back to their work. Now, as you say, and we're talking about, you're you're being introduced to the field earlier in a lot of different ways. And all of that, I think, can only contribute to this shift from treatment of the sick and the ill to be prevention-focused and prevention as a sort of a cultural value that we um, may be seeing some positive trends, not just in education, but in our healthcare 
system. You know, I think we're going to talk a little bit later about community health workers and their role. I think that's they're, they're really integral into being able to be a liaison between a community, a trusted member of the community, and navigating the healthcare system. Um, I think in our insurance policies, Affordable Care Act was certainly a first really important step in being able to um, prioritize um, prevention medicine and not just treatment. So there's progress in multiple different sectors and in multiple different ways. But, you know, we're, we're a long way from sort of the Costa Rican model of how to think about health and wellness in this country. But I'm hopeful. And I'm especially hopeful, as you say, because so many of the young people uh, in our in our country are starting to be are starting to think about not just through public health lens, but having lived through a pandemic about the importance of prevention yeah. um, and the importance of where we live and how we support each other and sort of our shared responsibility in, in our, our health and our well-being and not just sort of the individual um, approach. Yeah. But it's hard. Yes. <laughs> and there's three directions that I want to go off from there. Mm-hmm. So I want to just remind myself to come back to the community health yeah. workers because that's very important. Um, but, you know, kind of the whole purpose of this podcast is that I want to bring personal stories back mm-hmm. into public health because I think so much of where the public finds themselves with a negative view of mm-hmm. public health is because they think they associate public health with being treated as a number, mm-hmm. not a person. Right. And we've all experienced that. I mean, mm-hmm. both during COVID, just hearing these huge numbers that you couldn't really possibly put your arms around, right? Yeah. And also in the healthcare field, you know. Um, Yes, there have been improvements. There are still challenges. People deal with short, long wait times and Mm -hmm. short appointment times and feeling like their doctor is viewing them just as patient number 100 and not, you know, whatever their name is. But I think it's important to understand, um, for example, in the public health major, we do take epidemiology. Mm -hmm. We do think about population health. But we also take health promotion Mm-hmm. and health promotion planning. And we also take health communication. So there is there is this zoom out that is important to public health. But public health professionals do also have this training on how to zoom in and mm-hmm. how to really meet the individual. Um, so I think it's important to just like let people know that, that mm-hmm. that is part of the public health training, that public health professionals aren't just all about turning people into data sets mm-hmm. and not knowing what any of their names are. Right. There's also a lot of training around how to sit down with someone and communicate with them and talk to them about health improvements and mm-hmm. and their health in general. So when it comes to community health workers, mm-hmm. I've had two previous conversations on this podcast with um, friends of mine who are also amazing and multi-talented, and they both live with type 1 diabetes, Mm -hmm. which they both were diagnosed with later in life, in their early to mid-20s. And they both have had sort of negative experiences of the healthcare system navigating a chronic illness, um, and especially one that so dramatically impacts day-to-day life and is so life or death. You know, there's no, like, middle-of-the-road type 1 diabetes management. You have to be all in. So... One of the things that came up in that com- in those conversations is the idea of having, I guess, sort of a community health care model because their experience of the healthcare system was that, generally speaking, their doctors were not type 1 diabetics themselves. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of them had had one endocrinologist who was herself a type 1 diabetic, mm-hmm. and he said it was like the best care he'd ever had because she got it. You right. know, she really got it. 
Um, so when it comes to community health workers in general, I think mm -hmm. that the term, uh, like when you say a trusted member of the community, yeah. it usually applies to like a literal community, like a, like a physical community. But if we talk about chronic illnesses, mm -hmm. um, is there currently or what do you think of the idea of a community health worker model where the community is the illness? Mm -hmm. So where you're um, and I think this exists in the mental health field. Right. There are sort of like community partners who have dealt with mental health challenges and they operate as liaisons between doctor and patient. Is there an opportunity for a community health worker model where the community that we're talking about is more like a pop, like a patient population, say, with type 1 diabetes or another chronic illness, mm -hmm. and where doctors and healthcare organizations are seeking out people that are trusted voices, maybe from social media or something where, like, there's a public understanding that that person has dealt with the illness right. and they can kind of speak on behalf of patients? Right. Um, do you see that happening? So I think that's part of it. I mean, a community health worker, um, you know, it's 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 a broad term and there's lots of different roles that I think fall under the umbrella of a community health worker. But the key components are the is the trust that we've talked about. And the trust can come from I share this experience um, either with the condition, but mostly with a shared living experience. So I know this community the same way that you do, and I can assist in being able to help you manage a chronic condition in the sense of listening, respecting, time to, for, to, to talk to you and help maybe educate you on some of the things that your healthcare provider may not have been able to go over as carefully or with as much time or without knowing what, you know, food options there are or medication options there are given your situation and your family situation and your work situation, your transportation um, situation. And so really all of those, you know, I'm not wanting to use jargon, but when we think about social determinants of health right. that impact significantly how you're able to manage a chronic condition like type 1 diabetes that a community health worker can help navigate. So part of it might be, you know, having the experience themselves, but it's also being able to help you just navigate living with that illness, how to be able to manage it well, and how to be able to feel um, listen, respected, and be able to go to your healthcare provider with questions or with information that they can provide from their medical expertise, but with the also the support from a community member. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that I think that most people in public health and the healthcare field probably would agree at this point that to go forward with a healthcare system that is both successful and competent and affordable, mm -hmm. we do require community health workers and some kind of um, health coach, you know, more, mm -hmm. more uh, like, I don't know, middle of the road practitioners who aren't necessarily like have, carrying around eight year degrees right. or could perform surgery, right. but can actually That's not their help people yes. and meet people where they are and provide general guidance on how, like you're saying, That's to right. navigate healthcare challenges from maybe a more lived experience informed perspective. Right. And even just communication, because right. that communication and that relationship with your healthcare provider, we all know is so important and the quality of that. But it right. it takes time. 
you know, how comfortable you feel, how much time you have. I mean, all of these barriers, all of these challenges that can be supplemented with a community health worker. Right. Yeah. So pivoting from that, Mm -hmm. a really easy pivot is over to health literacy. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that I love to talk about is like, hey, when you're 17, 18, you don't need to have it all figured out. But another thing that's important in terms of like looking forward and sort of like someone's life trajectory and having a healthy and happy life is asking how are we talking to children Mm -hmm. about health? Because Mm -hmm. there's really no better time to reach people and educate them about healthy eating and healthy living and how to use, let's say, exercise and mindfulness to manage their mental health than when they're little kids, right? Right. It's a really fundamental time. So you have done some research Mm -hmm. and work around this in D.C. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear a bit more about the research. Sure. And then also just about your thoughts on where this work is going and Mm -hmm. and how we can improve this area of health literacy in children. Okay. So a lot of the work that, as you said, we're in D.C., uh, most of our work is community-based work in in D.C., um, it's really across the lifespan. So I can talk about some of the work that we've done with elementary uh, school age children all the way up to older adults. And this is in our um, Healthy Communities, Healthy Schools Lab um, at American University. So that's with uh, Stacy Snelling, who's the chair of our department, and Robin McClave. Lots of undergraduate students, lots of graduate students. If there's one thing in, in public health that's consistent <laughs> across schools, across fields, it's that we don't really work alone. We work in teams. We work collaboratively. So all of these projects are the good thinking and the work and the skills of, of lots of lots of people. So just want to acknowledge that. So uh, one project that I think that you're referring to is a project that we recently completed, funded by the USDA, that was in um, ultimately to uh, reduce childhood obesity among children. So in D.C., even though there are wards of D.C. that have... Um, you know, really limited food access and sometimes maybe referred to as food deserts or not having um, uh, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables that are widely available. Also, maybe counterintuitive, maybe not, really high rates of obesity because so much of what is being consumed is high-processed foods, lots of food from corner stores rather than from uh, grocery stores. So our project was meeting students and teachers where they are in the school system with the rationale that so many of the students are receiving one, two, you know, two meals a day in the schools. So much of their time is spent in school and with teachers um, who can really be an influence and a role model in helping to be able to understand their own health, understand um, healthy choices, really be thinking about their own um, attitudes around and beliefs around a belief around food at a young age. But what was, I think, um, different about this work was that we were centering teachers. And teachers, as Stacy always likes to say, you know, the permanent residents of the school. So how can we expect teachers to be able to teach our students, educate our students, and really care for the whole child if we're not caring for the teachers themselves? So we were really centering teachers in some ways as the community health workers within the school. So how do we t- help 
take care of teachers in ways that that they're telling us. So, you know, truly partners in this work in expressing to us what they wanted to know and how they could be supported in their emotional and physical health to be the best show up as the best teachers that they could to then implement these um, nutrition lessons in their classroom. So we started with the teachers. I love that. Mm -hmm. That's really smart. Mm -hmm. Um, A quick aside, my daughter had a teacher for third grade who is also a fitness professional. Mm -hmm. So she's a third grade teacher, but then she also is a weightlifter and Mm -hmm. she teaches like, you know, the gym fitness classes. And it really, she shows up at school as that person, right? right? That's who she is. She cares about health. So she's snacking on fruits and veggies in class. And during lunch break, when she has 20 minutes, she goes for a walk in the neighborhood. She's modeling fitness and she would like have the kids do push-up contests during class and get up and get moving. And she was more likely to have them go outside and run around to freshen up their minds than, you know, to have them do something else. So I do think that this idea of like the trickle down, you know, Mm -hmm. tone at the top approach where if the person who runs the class classroom is feeling their best and right. modeling healthy eating and uh, health behaviors, right. then you really can shift the whole tone right. of the classroom. I also had to laugh when you said the permanent residence of the school, because <laughs> when you're a little kid, you really do think that your teacher lives right. at school. Yeah, right. Well, and I was just at um, APHA, the American Public Health Association, which is our big, big, big annual conference in Atlanta. And I just returned yesterday where we were presenting on this work. But what we, and we've Presented and published on our student outcomes, which were it was a um, intervention study. So we had two intervention schools and we had two comparison schools, so that we could follow the students and the teachers and the community. We had community partners as well. It was really a multi-level study across these five years. But what we just presented on at APHA was really looking at that teacher data. We've got so much rich data. We've got so much, but we had the opportunity because the study took place over the pandemic to look at teachers' self-reported health, their emotional health, their stress, their mental well-being before the pandemic and during the pandemic and after. And not surprising to anyone, but important to emphasize, teachers' health plummeted during the pandemic. So I, you know, I want to acknowledge that we're talking about how to support teachers to be able to show up and to be role models and model for students. But again, I think so many teachers were leaving the profession, feeling burnt out, and we do have to prioritize ways that we can make sure that we're supporting teachers so that they can show up as their best way. And that's not just on the individual level, right? right. That's back to the beginning of our conversation. We need to have systems in place at the school, at the district, at the state level um, to be able to support them. You could use the same argument for parenting. <laughs> well, yeah. So actually, I was going to ask a question based on that. We hear so much right now in the healthcare field about healthcare worker burnout. Same doctor burnout. And same then concept. teacher burnout. Right. And then of course, during the pandemic especially, but now in just our fast paced society, parents are burning mm-hmm. out, teenagers are burning out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to just to put the spotlight on you for a oh second, boy. like you're a mom of four. Yep. You're running a big show mm-hmm. at a university. You're conducting research. You're teaching courses. You serve as a mentor for many students. You're guiding them in their graduate school considerations. You're guiding them through mm-hmm. undergrad. You're doing the same in your own family. You're going on podcasts. You mm-hmm. know, you're going to conferences. 
what are your thoughts in general, but maybe from your own experience on how to prevent burnout, how to find that, you know, balance is a mm-hmm. tricky word. Balance mm-hmm. is like a dirty word, but how do you prevent that burnout? How do you find that balance? Well, that's a million dollar question. <laughs> um, I <Take> your- <laughs> don't know if I have an answer, but I do have a perspective, which is, um, I think it gets easier the older that you get. And I think it gets easier for a lot of reasons. And I think we um, often forget and need to remind ourselves because we think of, you know, college, early 20s as the beginning and there's so much opportunity and you have youth and you have health and you have choices and there's just so much that you can choose to do and um, that that goes along with just feeling good and strong and ready. But it's hard. And I really think now that I can look back on several decades now, those are the hardest years. And it's hard to not know that uncertainty is very hard. And so what you get with experience and with time is not just confidence in what it is that you want to do and what you are, you know, good at or are getting the skills to become more proficient um, and that you can do these things that you're interested in is, but you also get perspective that um, you can manage it. And I think that that experience really counts for a lot in the balancing it. So I just don't get as overwhelmed as I used to when I was younger. It's a lot and there's a lot of things to do, but I just sort of feel like, okay, I've done it before. I can do it again. And if I don't, it's okay. And sometimes, you know, good enough is okay. And so I um, am just not, I think, as anxious about how do I do it all as I was when I was younger. And that just frees up a lot of emotional (laughs) space. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I I can resonate with that. I often think that um, just every five years or so, I kind of level up in my capacity. Mm -hmm. Part of it is that you just learn how to put some things a little bit on Mm -hmm. autoplay, like cooking and cleaning and those kinds of things become more part of your routine. It's not a new thing that you're tackling every day. Um, And as you manage them, you learn how to live with them. And it gets easier. I mean, I really would say that to the young people. It gets easier. Yeah. Even though you're doing more, somehow managing it, I think, gets easier. Yeah. All right. Well, then there's there's Mm -hmm. hope Mm -hmm. for all of us. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, another question aimed directly at you. And we can cut this out if if you want me to. But... I'm curious, how does a public health professional who studies health literacy in children mm-hmm. and, you know, nutrition and community health, how does that person raise their own kids around food? How did you educate your own children around cooking, shopping for food, thinking about food choices? Mm-hmm. Was that a conscious thing for you or was that kind of just, you know, it it was what it was? Yes. Hmm. Okay. So... Four kids, all very different, of course. So all your kids are always going to be different. Mm-hmm. But I I did the best I could. <laughs> um, I tried to um, really have them participate in grocery shopping with me. I mean, I had to. So they were there and we were selecting. We were always trying to, you know, select colorful foods and sort of make it fun. They would cook alongside of me when, you know, they were old enough. And, you know, we had those like plastic knives. And so they were part of um, cooking. 
I tried, you know, there were so many different picky eaters or preferences, and I really tried to have a loving but firm, we all eat the same meals, and we're all having the same food, so there's not, like, a special thing for the kids. Um, And, like, you know, short order cook for six people in my family, so I tried, like, we all have to try everything, and we all have to um, try new things. Um... As they got older, we would have uh, cooking nights. So everybody would, um, on Sunday evenings, you got to pick the recipe. So that was the, you know, like you could pick. And if you wanted dessert for, or not dessert, if you wanted breakfast for dinner, or if you wanted Mm. to have a new recipe or a favorite recipe. So that was the choice. And then they would pick it and I would, you know, um, buy the food and then we would cook it together. So they were learning some basic cooking skills. Um, you know, more successful with some than others. I've got still some very, very picky eaters. Um, and we definitely relaxed rules in the pandemic, which I thought was something that we could go back to. Um, you know, we never had any sugar cereals in our house. It just wasn't even something that they asked for, knew about, expected, except for if they went to the grandparents, which was, you know, their rules, that's fine. But not, in, it just wasn't in our house. And so when it, when it's the way it's always been, then there isn't pushback. Right. So that part was fine. But then I would, um, you know, I think I made a mistake there in the pandemic with food, like having essentially like, oh, you know, these are foods that you can have now, you know, snack foods and things. And, um, and we've never gone back. <laughs> was part of that because you had children who were returning from college. Yes. I mean, dining hall, whole, you have cereal right. four meals a day. Right. And so it was a it was a whole different burden of like feeding the family because right. we were all together. Everybody was home, all different ages, all trying to do school and do work. And so part of it was convenience mm-hmm. and part of it was trying to, you know, do something different when every day was like the, you know, the one before. Um, but yeah, let's just say that there's Fruit Loops in my house right now. (laughs) (laughs) True stories from a public health professional. (laughs) It's funny. I was at Target with my middle daughter the other day and we were walking down the cereal aisle and she looks up at the tricks and Mm -hmm. she goes, I'm never going to have that childhood where you just like eat tricks sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know? And I was like, no, you're going to have that childhood where you feel good a lot. And (laughs) she was like... I guess so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's also funny to me because, like you say, as a mom, every kid is different. They're all yeah. picky in their own way. That's right. And my least picky eater is the one with the most allergies, the mm-hmm. one who's, like, technically the most dangerous to feed. Mm-hmm. Anything safe for her, it could be raw meat. Like, she's like, she's like, oh, is this too mushy or too crunchy? Like, it's, I love it. It's delicious. She's so open-minded. Oh, She'll try great. any ethnic food. That's great, yeah. And it's just so funny because mm-hmm. she has the most limitations technically. But preferentially, Mm -hmm. she's all over the place. And then the Mm -hmm. ones who have more open from a limitation perspective, they then Mm self-select in a variety of Mm -hmm. ways. Although they're still, they're picky in funny ways. Like they don't like certain things, but they love West African food. Mm. And like they love Ethiopian food. They love food with big flavors. Mm -hmm. Yes, saucy, bold, spicy. And then like I'll cook, I don't know, a piece of chicken. And and they're like, "Um, I don't know. It's like it's to this or it's to that. I'm like... (laughs) Okay, uh-huh. I should have like put a, I don't know, really, really mm-hmm. powerful spice on it. And then maybe you would have liked it more. Um, another thing that's very critical to public health, of yes. course, is data quality. Yes. Um, so I know that in the past you've done some work around that. And so I wanted to hear a little bit from you on, of course, during mm-hmm. the pandemic, we've um, 
maybe improved and also just expanded how we think about data collection mm-hmm. around health trends and certainly pandemics, but other things like chronic disease rates. Um, but also, let's say over the last 20 years mm-hmm. in the public health sphere, what have you seen in terms of improvements around data collection and analysis? And where do you think the trends are going? Is maybe AI going to be helpful? Mm-hmm. Is it just better tools? Wh- mm-hmm. What are you seeing? Um so I'm a methodologist by training. So really, when I think of, you know, my work in public health and contributions, it's from a methodological standpoint. So I'm much more interested in the process. I'm much more interested in how do we ask good questions and have the tools and the instruments to be able to measure those predictors and risk factors and protective factors and outcomes to then be able to draw conclusions that are valid and reliable. So I um, am much more interested in the process than even the, the findings because, you know, ultimately the goal is the truth. I mean, I hope that's not a controversial statement, but, you know, the truth is the truth. And so in science, we're trying to get as close to the truth as we can. And that can be whatever. I mean, that is what it is. And we can hypothesize and we can use previous uh, findings and previous work to guide our thinking and we can have frameworks. And all of that is really important. But I'm much more focused. So all of my role and all of our research is really on that. How do we collect these data? How do we analyze these data in a way that we we can draw conclusions that we're confident in, and how do we ask good questions? And then the, the results are the results, and they stand for themselves. Um, so we, um, I think we've made a lot of progress in the sense that we're very much an evidence-based field. So, you know, we're not um, making decisions about recommendations or priorities or funding without it being evidence-based. And it takes a lot to be able to have a body of evidence. So it takes a long time to establish causality. So we need lots of studies that are well-conducted and rigorous methodologically to be able to be confident in our findings. That was one of the challenges with the pandemic. It was it was real time. So right. we were learning as we were going. And I think, in my perspective, the science in the pandemic is one thing that we did as a field to be very proud of globally. The way that scientists were sharing information and being able to share an understanding of how this virus was behaving, what treatments were working and weren't, and who was most at risk was happening real time. That all happened very, very quickly. And I know... The trust issue was, you know, was a major problem in being able to believe the science because it was evolving as as the pandemic was evolving. But that happened very quickly and really high quality collaboration across the globe with scientists. Um, so I think, you know, progress certainly there and sh- data sharing that's happening much more. I mean, now in most um, scientific journals, you're including access to your data so it can be replicated. So other researchers can analyze that data in similar or maybe different ways. And so the collaborative and sort of the technology to support data sharing, I think, is um, really one one advancement. Yeah. But we always say, you know, good data in, good data out, you know, and so it's anything that we understand in the field, whether it's health literacy or, you know, managing conditions or treatment is contingent on the quality of the data. And if it's poorly, um, 
you know, if we're asking questions that people don't understand or if we're asking questions that people aren't comfortable answering truthfully, if we're asking questions in different ways and getting different information, then we're not going to have good data and we're not going to be able to have strong conclusions. And, you know, it just gets disrupted the whole way. So it's all about the data to me. Right. (laughs) It's funny because I'm like totally on the other side of it. Right. right? I'm like all about the communication part of it and how do we communicate things compassionately and like really dial it down to the individual and how they're open to receiving information. And to that end, where those two things meet in the middle, you know, data and the communication piece, I really think that the biggest stumbling block of COVID, like you're saying, things are happening in real time and we're trying to make the science happen moment to moment and it's changing. How can the field of public health and the healthcare field, and maybe all authoritative mm-hmm. positions in general, get better at communicating uncertainty. Right. Because I feel like there were these moments right. where if the communication had been, yep. we just aren't really sure, and we are humans, mm-hmm. and, and we care about each other, and we need to just take a beat and slow down right. and come back to this, like, give us 48 hours, please, you right. know, that maybe a lot of anger could have been spared. I'm sure somebody's sure. going to get pissed off from the message about we're not sure, but... In general, like, is there a better way? Like, have we learned from COVID how in the future to better communicate uncertainty? So that was a huge problem. It was a huge breakdown in the public trust with, you know, authority, public health officials, um, political leaders. Um, I think that that is an area that probably needs the most attention in the field, which is translating the data. I think for a long time, we thought the science just spoke for itself. And, you know, and so a strong um, association or relationship or something that you can do would just be enough. And that piece that you're talking about, translating the information, translating the data, being able to communicate appropriately to the community that you're trying to reach is has been maybe a neglected area that we the pandemic certainly shone a light on is that we need to do a better job. Um, I don't know. I think you could argue it both ways because it's not a one size fits all. If you say that you don't know, which we are very accustomed to do doing in science, we say it all the time. We're more comfortable saying what we don't know than what we do know. But that isn't very reassuring to a public that's scared and doesn't know what's happening and needs to hear that sort of reassurance from um, our leaders about what they do know. So it 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 missed the mark that way and from both sides, um, being uncertain, but also having too much certainty when it was changing. Right. And it's all about the trust piece, right? So right. it depends on who's delivering the information and how they're doing it to know the community. And I think it worked much better when it was, again, I don't know that they were community health workers necessarily, but leaders within the community. So whether it was your church leader or someone, you know, more locally that you could trust what they were saying that went further for communities in the pandemic. But health communication, (laughs) that translating is really, really, really important. Yeah. And the other side of that, of course, like you just mentioned, is health literacy and science literacy. So. As a scientist to say, of course, you know, the the science would right. just speak for itself. It speaks to other scientists. Right. It doesn't. <laughs> it may it's not like speak another to language. The public. It's exactly. Language. So learning how to take those conclusions and translate them into something that feels more comfortable, feels more approachable, feels right. more human, I think is really important and something I'm very passionate about. Yeah. Lead the way. Lead the way. <laughs> Thank we need, you. Yes. We need that. Yes. <laughs> we need that combination. That are. balance. Yes. On the Marion Flaxman Network, we believe <laughs> in progressive health communication practices. 
So we're coming close to the end of our conversation here. And I want to ask sort of two last questions Mm -hmm. because they're both a little big and I'm, I'm worried about how big they are. The first question came up for me when you were talking about the health literacy uh, among elementary school students and teachers in some of these neighborhoods. Um, my question is about, it's sort of confounding variables and it's sort of environmental factors. So when you have a child, let's say, who's living in um, a city and they're lower income, so already maybe they have a uh, lack of food access and maybe um, like you say, they're buying more things at a corner store, more packaged goods, more nutrient depleted but calorie rich mm-hmm. foods um, that are maybe obesogenic. And obviously, approaching that person from both a health literacy and nutrition education perspective, as well as maybe improving health food access through schools or other community programs, is great. But where is that work? meeting the kind of overlapping variables of knowing that those communities tend to have higher rates of air pollution, Mm -hmm. tend to have higher exposure to lead, tend to have higher exposure to mold in housing. Um, I've seen maps from D.C. of the lower income areas um, mapped for asthma rates as well as known mold exposure in um, housing that's not being addressed. So is it possible? Like at a certain point, there are so many variables Mm -hmm. and it becomes impossible to kind of look at them together. But is it possible? Is there room in sort of like the nutrition and health promotion field to consider the environmental factors that could be simultaneously contributing to um, sort of like the negative health outcomes and and perhaps even precipitating the obesogenic, like Mm -hmm. the development of obesity? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't know if you know, Francesca Dominici, she's doing a lot of work in this area. She's at Harvard. She's an environmental um, statistician. She used to be at Hopkins when I was there. She's amazing. She's been talking about how um, air quality, air pollution, environmental factors are uh, impacting children, particularly, you know, in critical periods of development, but everybody in certain communities for a long time. And um, uh, she just does outstanding work. I think, you know, what you're talking about, If you know, it makes me think if we had a map and we're sort of overlaying, you know, if, low income or um, other, you know, chronic conditions or, um, uh, ac- you know, not access to affordable housing or, you know, you could go down the list. The maps would look very similar for right. a variety of these conditions. Um, and that, I think, is really where we focus in public health. I mean, that's really the our, our mission and sort of where the values are of the field. We know that your zip code matters more than your genetic code. I mean, it's a um, sort of, um, you know, a catchy line, but it's true. Where you live and that community where you live is going to predict your health. It's going to predict your life expectancy much more than any of these other sort of, you know, variables or predictors. So in that sense, Again, when we're talking about the social determinants of health, that's where the resources, that's where the energy, that's where the research, that's where the prioritizing, that's where the policy, that's where the work is going, um, or I think is, we're trying to get to go. And it, from every level, from building up, you know, centering voices of community members, sort of from the local level up, all the way to, you know, the politicians and having um, prioritizing neighborhoods and having protections in place for, for neighborhoods based on the data to be able to, you know, make a difference, to, to make a difference. Even here in D.C., 
I think it's a 15 year difference in life expectancy between, you know, the, the wards, you know, wards seven and eight compared to, um, you know, Northwest and wards three and four. And we're talking one mile difference. Right. Yeah, that's an outrageous mm-hmm. and very powerful statistic. Mm-hmm. And that is why I love public health, because mm-hmm. I think that oftentimes um, in, in many fields, we want to find this one factor. Like, what is it? What's mm-hmm. causing this? Mm-hmm. Is it their genes? Is it their diet? Is it their water quality? Is it the air quality? Is it this? Is it that? And public health as a field sort mm-hmm. of says, it's all of it. Yeah. And it all matters and it all impacts each other, right? If you live in an area where you're housing insecure, you probably don't have access to a kitchen where you can cook really healthy meals all the time. And then if that same neighborhood lacks grocery store options or fresh farm markets, then you don't even have a place to go get the Mm -hmm. ingredients Mm -hmm. for cooking that meal. And then if, you know, and on and on and on. So Well, and not just across in terms of factors or sort of what we consider risk factors, but if you think about through time, right? So then right. you think of generational and cumulative effects, right. you know, the weathering um, hypothesis. But I could bring, you know, um, on a more optimistic note, one of the projects that I worked on during the pandemic was a qualitative project. So it wasn't data, data, numbers. It was a listening project and talking with community members members and hearing their stories during the pandemic of whatever they wanted to share about their experience. We were asking questions and it was community health workers who were asking the questions. So people that were of the community speaking to other community members outside of the corner stores. Um, And we were really trying to talk about food access during the pandemic, food security issues. And so that's where we started with our questions, but then we opened it up to whatever people were willing to share. And I can say from that experience, we did over 100 interviews in the in the height of the pandemic, literally met people where they were. First of all, how willing and, um, you know, enthusiastic people were to talk and share their stories. So just so many beautiful, rich experiences shared with us and how much the topics of, I guess, you know, resilience is really the word, how the, how many stories there were of shared experiences, how faith was really important, how community members coming together and just helping each other out in small and large ways made all the difference, how the food programs in D.C. and the mayor prioritizing um, food pickup and food delivery were working and people were having groceries brought to their door if they had mobility issues, that there were, you know, um, food uh, markets in public places and outside schools and and other, you know, um, accessible places and how the community just felt that they were, were had so many opportunities to come together and that it was a lot of stories of strength and hope. And so there's so much community empowerment that's going on at the same time in some of our most, you know, vulnerable communities. And they were so eager to talk about those those strengths. And so what I thought was going to be a really um, hard project um, at a really hard time for our country and our world Uh, There were lots of different stories, but there were so many themes of just strength. And so um, 
It was really a wonderful project that way. Yeah. yeah. That's really great to mm-hmm. hear about. I want to read more about that. And speaking of which, mm-hmm. in conclusion, mm-hmm. I would love to hear, I know that you're up to so many things, so I can't really ask, you know, what are you up to? But I would love to ask, what are you up to that you are most excited about? What are you doing right now that really lights you up? <laughs> Um, well, there's a pro, I mean, it's sort of like your, your kids or the class that you're teaching. It's your, whatever you're working on is your favorite at the time. So I, right now we're working on an evaluation study, um, for older adults. So I really like working on projects across the lifespan. So much of my early work was in, is in pregnancy and pregnancy outcomes. And then I've moved to childhood and parenting. And now this project is on older adults. Um, And it's an evaluation. um, It's funded by the D.C. Department of Health for um, aging in place. So D.C. has a great um, home modification program. So they'll come into your home and and equip it with um, adaptations and modifications so that you can live safely in your home without falling or reducing your risk of falling and reducing your fear of falling. And so they've invested um, in um, these adaptations for over 5,000 D.C. residents that are over 60 years old or any adult with disability, so older adults or anybody with mobility issues. And so we are evaluating that program uh, to really see uh, the impact and the success and make recommendations on how to expand it to other areas of preventing falls and um, promoting healthy aging in place. So it's been really, really great to see how much this program has so far preliminary has uh, helped people mostly in their fear of falling and reducing their fear of falling to feel safe in your own home. Yeah. And that's so important. That's so important. Well, we will definitely link to that because I'm very interested in that as a resource. I think that in general, being able to age in place Mm -hmm. as, you know, public health, one of our many issues is elder care and the growing uh, concern over how we're going to care for our aging population. So knowing that D.C. is being proactive Mm -hmm. and promoting that is really exciting. Well, it's the largest, as you know, you know, largest growing demographic in the country and certainly in D.C. So, yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Hawkins, please thank call you. me Melissa. Melissa, My goodness. thank yes. you so much of course. for joining me today. Thank you. And I just want it's to reiterate, fun. I found um, a journal entry that I wrote right when I was applying to American, right after I had first met you. And I wrote something like, you know, I didn't really think that I could fit in in academia. I didn't really think that I could belong. But I just met all these, like, leaders in the department, and they're all moms of, like, more than kids than I even have. And, like, maybe I could fit Mm -hmm. in. Maybe I could belong. So I just want to thank you for creating that space and also um, for fostering that in the department and the school because I really never felt othered by my peers, even though they were, like, 15 years younger than Mm -hmm. me or at least Mm -hmm. 10 years younger than me I really did get the feeling that I belonged so kudos to you for bringing that into that environment and uh, for sharing that warmth and welcoming energy with me wonderful well thank you we were lucky to have you my pleasure (laughs) thank you once again for listening to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast for more information on me Marion please visit my website at marionflaxman.com for more information on my guest Dr. Melissa Hawkins, please find a link in the show notes. This episode was produced by Brain Trust Productions and sponsored by Inform Solutions Consulting. Thank you so much once again for listening, and we'll see you next time. 